Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, the 14th chapter. We're teaching through the book of Revelation, and we got down to verse 5. But I would like to recap what we studied in the first uh, five verses, just briefly, to get the whole picture here. Uh, Revelation 14, if you will. Now, verses 1 through 5, you have the Lamb and the 144,000. Verses 1 through 5. In verses, five, uh, verses 6 and 7, you have the proclamation of the everlasting gospel. Verse 8, you have fallen Babylon, but fallen Babylon means it's anticipated. The, the announcement is an anticipation of what will happen. Verses 9 through 11, the eternal wrath for the worshipers of the beast. In verses 12... Through 13, is a, it refers especially to those martyrs who die in the Lord during the tribulation period. In verses 14 through 20, the harvest and the vintage, the harvest of the earth, that is, in the way of judgment. Now then, let's look at chapter 14, verse 1. <clears throat> it says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty and four thousand having his father's name written in their foreheads. In the previous chapter, the beast had some whose names were written uh, that took the mark of the beast. But here, these are sealed and have the father's name written in their foreheads. This is the same 144,000 that you find in chapter 7. Verse 2 says, And I heard the voice, a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of great, a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. These harpers are evidently the martyred company seen under the fifth seal. In the, that's in the uh, sixth chapter of the book of Revelation. And then all the rest of those, their brethren, which are, were slain during the great tribulation. So they're singing their uh, song of redemption in verse 3. In verse 3 it says, They sung as it were a new song before the throne. And before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. So the song is of redemption by the blood of the Lamb out of the great tribulation period. Verse 4 says, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and the Lamb. So basically it's saying here they did not defile themselves with the corruption and idolatries of that day. And the symbolism is borne out in other passages of Scripture. Now then, it says that they were the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. We know that they're the first fruits of the tribulation saints. The martyred saints during the tribulation period. We're looking now at their future, actually. This 14th chapter is anticipating Christ's coming in power and great glory and the millennium when you'll see them right before uh, we enter into the thousand-year reign that uh, this will actually take place. And it's all anticipating that particular time. Just as we said earlier in the introduction that verse 8 is anticipating the fall of Babylon. It actually happens in chapter 16 and 17 is where you read uh, of the facts of it. Because it says again there in chapter 16 and 17, Babylon has fallen. So all this is uh, anticipating what will be the climax and the fulfillment 
of the things that will take place during the tribulation period. Notice verse 4 says, These were redeemed from among men, the last part of verse 4, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now then, this is true that they're the first fruits of the tribulation saints. But it's also true that all believers are called the first fruits. Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. Uh, and afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. And you can find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read this for you. 1 Corinthians 15. It says uh, in verse 20 through 22, through 23 rather. It says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. The first fruit is a promise of more to come. It's a promise of a harvest to come. And in this case, the harvest of resurrection. Okay? It says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Live. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Now look. Afterward, they that are Christ at His coming... So at Christ's coming, the completion of the resurrection and of the first fruits of the resurrection will be complete. Remember, that separates at least so far 2,000 years, doesn't it? About 2,000 years from that time. Well, not actually, but uh, somewhat. Uh, we call it in round figures. And uh, then we don't know yet when this will happen, so it could be even more than that. But we do know that Christ was the first fruits. And it says, afterward, they that are Christ at His coming. And what we're studying here in Revelation anticipates the coming of Christ. So we see that the first fruits of the tribulation, as well as the Christians that are resurrected during this day and age of grace, will make up the company of redeemed in the future uh, in Revelation chapter 19. Now then, uh, we got down to verse 5, and in their mouth, look at verse 5. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they were without fault before the throne of God. Now then, the only way that any of us are without fault before the throne of God is by the grace of God. Even the tribulation saints. Now then, we pick up with verse 6. The, and uh, this has to do with the proclamation of the everlasting gospel. There's a wide and varied number of opinions about this. But it says in verse 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Now then, here is a gospel that's preached. Some say that uh, the angel here is not to be taken literally. Someone might help, if you will. please. Uh, the angel is not to be taken literally because uh, the gospel... Uh, to those on earth is to be is committed unto men. The gospel is committed to men to preach. Now then, here it says an angel, and it, I think during the tribulation period, if God sees that He wants to use an angel instead of men, He'll use an angel. Now, as I say, it it takes on various uh, differences of opinion. This uh, verse of scripture, this passage of scripture. Now then, I want you to notice. That it says, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. 
and every uh, nation and kindred and tongue and people. Now, let me just say this, that the gospel is everlasting in that he is the next verse tells us that he is the creator that made heaven and earth and the, and, uh, the sea and all the fountains of waters. So he he is everlasting. So they're preaching of God, the father, they're preaching of of the everlasting God. And here is the everlasting gospel. It doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to the salvation of these that it's preached to. It may take on a different tone. It takes on the tone of judgment here. But you know, even when judgment is preached, grace can be uh, preached as well. And I believe that the circumstances and the situation would would involve this, that, that it's the last opportunity for men to hear and they could trust the Lord at the risk of their own lives. We find that many do during the tribulation. And if they refuse, they're going to be judged uh, because of that refusal. And the opportunity is this, that during a time of judgment and a time of tribulation, certainly an opportunity to be saved would be most welcome. I know that even in this day and age of grace, an opportunity to be saved should be welcome. But then, it certainly will be most welcome. And uh, the ones that receive the gospel, and there's never any salvation for anyone except by the blood of Christ and by the salvation that comes through Christ. So that's going to have to be a part of this message. Even though you might say the angel is preaching it. Some differ and say that uh, the angel is symbolical here. But uh, regardless of what you believe about who is the pre- doing the preaching of it, we know that it is a gospel. It's a gospel in the midst of tribulation. It's a gospel that offers hope in the midst of judgment. Now then, in verse 7 it says, in uh, saying with a loud voice, this message will be with a loud voice, and it will say, Fear God and give glory to Him. Well, this is opportunity to fear God. This is opportunity for salvation. And give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come. Well, if you know judgment is the hour of His judgment is there, it would be an incentive to escape that judgment by fearing God and turning to God, would it not? And it says, The hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him that what? As Creator. That made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. So we said it is everlasting because it concerns the Creator as the only object of worship. Now then, verse 8, we have the warning given here about Babylon. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, when this statement is made here, Babylon is fallen. We find it again in the 16th and 17th chapter when other terrible things and Babylon is the center and the focus of the message. So here, it's anticipating the complete fall of Babylon. And just because the announcement is made here doesn't mean it happens right now and nothing else happens. And the other things that happen in chapter 16 and 17 are of a different matter. It's still the same thing. And we have to get this viewpoint in our minds. Can you imagine all that John had to announce and him trying to say it all at one time 
when there were many more things to be said. So when he says Babylon has fallen, he's anticipating the the message is anticipation of of all the things that are going to be complete. Just as we anticipated the future glory of these martyred saints at the end of the tribulation. And anticipating Christ's coming when they will receive that glory. And when it will be complete as far as the first resurrection. The first fruits unto God. So, looking at it either way, as far as the redeemed are concerned, or as far as the uh, uh, the wicked, as Babylon is concerned, it's still anticipating future things. Now, if you get that thought in your mind, it will be a lot less difficult to understand the next few chapters that we'll be studying. Chapter 15, 16, 17, 18, and even bring us over to 19, the coming of Christ to put an end to it all. To put an end to it all, all the tribulation. In fact, before we finish this chapter, though the battle of Armageddon just happens right before Christ's coming, it's already pictured and seen in this chapter of what it's going to be and how terrible it's going to be at the end of this chapter we're studying. Though it will not actually happen till Revelation chapter 19 where it announces the coming of Christ to bring that battle to a head. So, if I could say, if I could encourage you in the best way I can to try to understand what we're talking about, Keep this in mind, it's not written in chronological order. A lot of the statements are anticipating things that continue throughout the tribulation period and will finally be culminated with certain announcements that are made. You see, it started back in chapter 6. And we had seven uh, seals that were opened. Then we had seven trumpets that were sounded announcing judgments. And now we're going to, in the 15th chapter, we're going to begin to start with 7th or 16th chapter, I think it is. Uh, this, well, announcement of the seven last plagues are in the 16th chapter, bowls of wrath or vials, bowls of judgment. Just as you had the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, and now the bowls are uh, vials of judgments. So there are three different kinds of judgments uh, that happen during the book of Revelation. And they're, they're a uh, trinity of sevens. Three different ones. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And they're called vials of judgment. As if God's bowl of wrath is full and it will be poured out in judgment upon the earth. Seven times. And each one bringing different plagues and different uh, different things in the form of judgments during that time. You know, we can be thankful that the, nowadays, in this day and age of grace, the Bible says the goodness of God leadeth us to repentance. And the gospel is preached and salvation is preached through Christ and His, His shed blood and through His finished work on the cross. And, the, and it's very simple and down to earth. It says, as many as received Him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And we're not going to have that kind of situation and circumstance here in the book of Revelation. The people will not have that opportunity. They'll not have that free uh, 
day and age of grace like we have. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. So let's go on with this now. It says in verse... uh, uh, Let me point out three things before we get further on. Notice verse 8 says... They'll drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The last part of verse 8. Down in verse 10, it says the same, and we'll pick up verse 9 in a minute, but notice this in verse 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. I want you to notice the wine of the wrath, of the cup of the wrath of God. It's the wrath of his indignation. Now then, drop on down to verse Uh, verse 15 and you'll see it says for the harvest of the earth is ripe and down in verse 18 thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the cluster of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe so you have the harvest of the You have the cup of God's indignation, first of all. Then you have the harvest of the earth is ripe. The earth will be reaped. And then you have, on down in verse 19, the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered in the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. There's the vintage. The harvest and the vintage. So three different thoughts are coming through here. You have the cup of God's wrath that we just mentioned. You have the harvest of the earth, and then you have the cup of his indignation being poured out. So those three things as we come along in this chapter will be uh, uh, more spoken of. Now then, let's go on down and read verse 9. It says, And the third angels uh, followed them, saying with a loud voice. You have 14 verse 9. Okay, look at it carefully. Saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now notice, those that have received the mark of that beast, God will judge. Those that receive Christ will put their lives at risk. There's no easy way out, is there? Those that receive Christ will be killed, many of them, and martyred. And they will be taken on up to heaven. We've been talking about the martyred saints of the tribulation. We've already read it, discussed it. So what a choice. Worship the beast... And let God's judgment fall? Or worship God? And let the persecutors of Satan take your life? Be far better to lose your, your life and save your soul, wouldn't it? We don't have that kind of a terrible choice. They don't have many options, do they? Now you have all the options in the world. You have all the opportunity in the world. But uh, then they will not have. So, verses 9 through 11 show us the eternal wrath 
for the worshippers of the beast. Now, verse 11 says, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So the final outcome is not here and now, but that's what's going to ultimately happen to them. It's just announced here that this is going to be the way things are going to end up. We saw how it's going to end up for the 144,000. They're going to be with the Lord on Mount Zion. We saw how, how, it was, how it would end up with the martyred saints. They're going to be singing the song of redemption and they're going to be the first fruits unto God. We saw that there was another opportunity. The everlasting gospel was preached. We saw that in the future Babylon is going to be fallen, right? Verse 8. And now here we see the eternal wrath that will be poured out upon the worshipers of the beast. Now then, we come to another thought, verses 12 and 13. Here it refers especially to those who die as martyrs at that time. I want you to read with me or listen with me, verse 12 and 13. It says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, from now on. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Now think of that for a moment. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from henceforth. That means during the tribulation period. That's taking these into consideration that die in the Lord during the the martyred saints. Blessed are they. They're going to rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Their rewards will finally be given to them at the end of it. You and I say, well, you know, and I've used it myself at a funeral service. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. And though it's not out of thought, it is out of context. But the thought is there because even those that die in the Lord today are blessed, aren't they? And they go on to be with the Lord, which is to be at rest from this work, uh, earth and the problems of this earth. And their rewards will follow them. But the context of the Scripture shows that it refers to the martyrs of the tribulation period. Though the message is still true for people of this day and age of grace. You see what I'm talking about? That... The context shows it's the tribulation saints. But the truth of the, of the theology of it is that at any time, even in the Old Testament times, those that die in the Lord, and especially in the New Testament times, those that die in the Lord are blessed. And they depart to be with Christ. So, to make a big issue out of whether it's referring to, uh, I mean, whether it's proper to use it for those who die in the Lord today is, is to take it really too far because all the those that die in the Lord are blessed and they will be with the Lord and they rest from their labors and their works will follow them. They'll receive their rewards. But the context says from henceforth, that means during this time, this tribulation time and from now on during the tribulation. And when this voice was was saying this, and John wrote it down, you might say that all of this was retroactive to the beginning of the tribulation. All of it was true for all the saints, even before the last three and a half years that we studied was uh, in, in chapter 13. 
and chapter 11 even, and 12 and 13, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Remember, the tribulation period is seven years total. Seven years. And uh, so, uh, the announcement really includes all of the tribulation time to these that die in the Lord. Now then, in verse 14 through uh, 20, you have something else here. <clears throat> you have the harvest and the vintage. And this scene here, all of this that's going to happen, brings us now to the coming of the Son of Man. It brings it into view. Because all of this will not be fulfilled until Christ comes in Revelation chapter 19. All of this harvest and this vintage and Christ's coming will initiate this kind of a thing that we read in the rest of these verses in the, in the 14th chapter. So let's begin to read it. It says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one likened to the Son of Man. Now who has that title but Christ? Having on his head a golden crown. And in his hand a sharp sickle. He's coming and he's going to uh, reap the harvest. He's going to tread the fierceness of the winepress of the wrath of God. And yet, we're told that he's going to use angels to do that. We're going to read of the angels here. You see, he's the great commander. But it says he will send forth his angels. The sickle in his hand to reap the harvest may be symbolical of the fact that he's saying, okay, now it's time. And he's going to use the angels to do his work. Just like, you know, you have a, a I don't know, maybe a very poor illustration to use, but if you have a man that's in a position of supervising, a superintendent, he says, now I'm going to do this. Well, he doesn't literally do it, but he... he he may have the symbolical items in his hand to do it. He may have a hammer in his hand, but the superintendent won't go around driving the nails. He'll have someone else doing that one. And sawing the boards, building the house, or the contractor won't. Uh, so here, Christ is coming, and He's going to bring this uh, judgment that is spoken of right before He comes again in power and great glory, and even as He comes again in power and great glory. This anticipates Christ's coming. Now let's look at it. Verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap. He was anxious. This other angel says he's anxious. For the time has come for, to, for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out uh, from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud uh, cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. He's talking about the cup of indignation, the cup of, of judgment. It is a day of vengeance. It is a day of God's judgment. It anticipates the battle of Armageddon. We'll read down in the 20th verse in a moment that will happen at Christ's coming. It anticipates all of this. So look at this uh, 19th verse. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and they gathered the vine of the earth 
and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even into the horses' bridle, horse bridles by the space of a thousand uh, and six hundred furlongs. That's two hundred miles. Quite a devastation and quite a battle and quite a judgment that will take place at Armageddon. Now then, I told you last week, I gave you some assignments. To, how many read where I told you? Anybody read the scriptures I told you to read? Somebody, few. Okay, I will turn to them. I want to turn first of all to Matthew 13, verse 41. We'll just look at that verse. It says in verse 41, The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them uh, which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's verse 42. So Jesus speaks of the fact that when the time comes, He's going to separate the tares from the wheat, and He's going to bring judgment. Now then, but basically I want you to look at chapter 63 of Isaiah. Chapter 63. And also I'll give you something in chapter 61 in a moment. Let's look at chapter 63, first of all, verses 1 through 6. Let me read Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. And this is speaking of the day of vengeance. It says, Who is he that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious is his apparel, tra traveling in the greatness of his strength. I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? His garments are like him that treadeth in the wine fat. Then it says, I have trodden the winepress alone. And of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Notice his redeemed is come, and vengeance as well. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury... It upheld me, and I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Now then, if you turn over to Revelation chapter 19, at Christ's coming, Revelation 19, let's begin reading with verse 11. And see if you see the similarity, and we know who this is in verse 11. It's Christ the Lord, coming in power and great glory. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed, now look here, remember the sprinkled clothing of blood. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's the saints that will come with Christ. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should swat, what, smite the nations. Look. 
that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Is not that not what Isaiah said? He treads the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we'll stop there because the rest of it will pertain to that Armageddon battle. But now then, so you have him identified. Now then, I wanted to give you another little thing that I believe is important. If you look in Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61 and then Luke chapter 4. I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 61. And we'll read verse 1 and most of verse 2. Well, we'll read verse 1 and 2. We'll put it that way. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Isaiah 61 verse 1. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, to proclaim excuse me, liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now look at this statement. And the day of vengeance of our God. I want you to look, underline, or you might just keep in mind. And the day of vengeance of our God. Isaiah said there's going to come a time that this will be complete. Now then, I want you to look in verse, and and to comfort all that mourn. Look in chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel. Verse 16. Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is Jesus. By the way, this is his first sermon where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now, he'd read the scripture before, but he preached after this. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, we're going to read exactly what we read or in the New Testament how it's written in, in the Greek and translated, and we have it in the English. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's what it said in Isaiah 61, verse 1. Because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Back there it says the meek, right? Because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. This is Jesus now. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Period. Have you noticed something? He didn't say, and the day of vengeance of our God, did he? You know why? He had just said, he will say, let's read on down. Notice where he stops quoting Isaiah. In the middle of verse 2. Isaiah 61, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. But here Jesus says to preach the acceptable 
uh, year of the Lord. And he closed the book. Let's read verse 20. You have Luke 4, verse 20. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them. Now notice this. It's very important. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. See that word fulfilled? That means filled full. That means it's complete. And he said, this day. And he was talking about himself. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And then he comes on to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. But he does not say the day of vengeance of our God. You get the point? If Jesus had said the day of vengeance of our God, all this that we're studying over there in the book of Revelation would be taking place then, in before 2,000 years ago. But he didn't say that. He said to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's what he came to do. Now then, there will be a day that Isaiah's prophecy of the day of vengeance of our God still will be the person of Christ in view that will bring that vengeance the day of vengeance of our God, but we're studying it over here in Revelation now. So, compare Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and compare Luke 4, verses 16 through 21. And we could go on and teach what he further taught from reading that Scripture. And after he said that, that this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, but I wanted you to especially get that point. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And if Jesus had quoted the last part of that second verse of Isaiah 61, it would have been a day of vengeance instead of a day of preaching the acceptable year of the Lord. But it wasn't a day of vengeance. That still waits a fulfillment. Isaiah's second verse is only partially fulfilled because it was fulfilled in Christ and He began to preach the day of the acceptable year of the Lord and it's being preached and, and has continued to be preached since the time of Christ. In fact, in the book of Acts of the Apostles, it says when Jesus was received up, they continued to do, the apostles continued to do what Jesus began, listen carefully, began both to do and to teach. So the works of Jesus continued through the apostles and through the churches even to this day and hour. And we're looking forward to that future time, not with joy when all of these judgments will take place, but for the coming of Christ for His own. But we're looking forward to the time of a future of the fulfillment of all the Scriptures that prophesy of Christ's coming in power and great glory. And so I think it's very important that you see that that judgment will take place. Now, back in Revelation 14, and I want to read these last verses again to see if you understand what we're talking about, that it's anticipating a future time. Let's read verses uh, verse 19 and 20 again. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the what? The great winepress of the wrath of God. That's mentioned in the 19th chapter of Revelation at Christ's coming when he comes. It's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 63 that we read. The great winepress of the wrath of God at the end of the tribulation when Christ comes again in power and great glory. Now then, 
It says in verse 20, And the winepress was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress even to the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Quite a great judgment that is due to come. I want to read one more little short passage for you. I wish I had time to read it all, but I won't have time to read it all in the book of Zechariah. Now, we, uh, before I read in Zechariah chapter 12, let me just say that in our next lesson... And it will be a week from tonight because this Sunday evening we take the Lord's Supper here in the evening service. But a week from tonight, in our next lesson, we'll take up the 15th chapter. So study and read the 15th chapter. But in closing our lesson for tonight, I'd like for you to look at Zechariah chapter 12. If you don't have time, let me just read this for you. It says, the burden of verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man in him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. By the way, Jerusalem even today is a burdensome stone to all people and will be from now on. It says, all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. Though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it, there will be a time that they will be gathered together, the battle of Armageddon, that all nations will come against Jerusalem. It says, in that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire in the sheath. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day shall the Lord defend, defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and he that is feeble among them. And at that day shall be as David and the house of David shall be as God, as an angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. He's going to seek to destroy all the nations that will come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, look, the spirit of grace and of supplications. <clears throat> the spirit of grace and supplications. Israel will repent. And Romans chapter 9 and chapter 11 speak of Israel being saved, a nation being born in a day. And at the end of the tribulation period, they were going to be turning to God and they will be saved. Now look, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Revelation 1.7 says they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Speaking of Christ. Behold, he cometh with the clouds and every eye shall see him. And all kindreds of their shall wail because of him. He says they'll look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is bitterness for his firstborn. 